Uh, we had a pretty significant birthday in our household this week. Um, I won't embarrass my daughter Alana, who just turned 16. Um, but we had a conversation somewhere this week around, uh, you know, when you're younger and there, there's something you really, really want and you sort of strike up a deal with your parents potentially that if you would just get me this one thing, I'll never ask for anything else ever, ever. And, and we're laughing because we, we do that. Um, and I was reminded of that situation with one of my daughters uh, this week, and it reminded me of me at that age as well. I would have been eight or nine, I remember, and this electronic game came out called Donkey Kong. I don't know if you remember that. Um, got a photo of it here, the orange one. And I remember I was eight or nine, and I would give anything. So. For the first time in my life, I remember I wasn't asking for presents for my birthday, I wanted money. And if I could get enough money, I could buy Donkey Kong. And I still remember that orange Donkey Kong cost $44. I actually had a look um, when I was finding that picture. They sell now for nearly $500. Um, so I should have kept it, but anyway. Um, $44, and I do remember... I got $45 for my birthday that year. And I went down and bought this game, just thinking, you know, if I just got enough money for this, I'll never ask for anything again, ever. Now, that didn't happen. Um, and, and the pink one is the Nintendo DS, which was what one of my daughters was asking for when they were about the same age. If I could just get a DS, you know, I'll never ask for anything again, ever. But it doesn't last, does it? Like, we make those promises, we try to make those deals with someone, and it just doesn't seem to last. So then I was reflecting, well, I, I've made prayer deals like that with God as well. God, if you would just answer this one prayer, I will, and there was always deals. If you would just answer this one prayer, I'll go to church for the rest of my life. If you would just answer this one prayer, I will never do something wrong again. If you would just grant me this one wish, and then it started to dawn me. I was treating God more like a, a genie who grants wishes than a loving father that I have this relationship with. And so as we look today, as we continue into Ephesians chapter 1, uh, it's basically around Paul's prayer. And, and I've been really um, encouraged this week to, to change what I pray for to have it more aligned with the scripture that um, Paul is saying that he's praying for the church. And I'm thinking there's something in that, there's some wisdom in that that we want to explore. So if you missed us last week, Jeff um, opened up the first part of Ephesians chapter 1 and he reminded us just how massive the scope of salvation really is. And he reminded us of the extravagant goodness of God and the magnitude of Christ's work and the glory that awaits all those who are in Christ. And that's how Ephesians chapter 1 started. And then we're going to finish that off today. So pull out your, your Bible, pull out your phone. I want you to have this in front of you if you've got, got it electronically. or who, Who's got an actual Bible in the room? Yes, that still exists. That's awesome. Um, a lot of us go electronically, but... 
Um, Pull out the Bible, turn to Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 15. And I'm going to read from the New Living Translation. It won't be on the screen, I'm just going to read this. So, ever since I heard of your strong faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for God's people everywhere, I have not stopped thanking God for you. I pray for you constantly. Asking God, the glorious Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to give you spiritual wisdom and insight so that you might grow in the knowledge of God. I pray that your hearts will be flooded with light so that you can understand the confident hope that he has given those he called, his holy people who are his rich and glorious inheritance. I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe him. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honour at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. Now he is far above any ruler or authority or power or leader or anything else, not only in this world but in the world to come. God has put all things under the authority of Christ and has made him head over all things for the benefit of the church. And the church is his body. It is made full and complete by Christ who fills all things everywhere with himself. And just as Jeff explained last week, in the original context, in the original writing, that's one sentence. Again, it's Paul just unloading. This is what it means. This is my prayer for you. If only you would just grasp the things that that God wants for you and I want for you. So in the prayer, in the start of this, we see that Paul is thanking God for the faith and the love that the Ephesian church has. He is thanking God for their faith and their love. And then he prays for three key things. That's what we're going to look at today. What are those three things that Paul prays for? And so we can see, and I'm not going to read this because I've just read it, But I've got it in bold there. Three times he says, I'm praying for this. I'm praying for this. I'm praying for this. And I hope that today we can get a little bit of um, conviction, a little bit of encouragement, a little bit of um, just understanding that these things are really worth praying for. In fact, if they were the top of our prayer list, if we had a prayer list, some of you do, These are the things that I think we need to have at the top of our prayer list because that will shape everything else in a really um, clear way that brings us into alignment with God's will. So the first prayer is to know God more intimately. I pray for you constantly, he says, asking God, the glorious Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to give you spiritual wisdom and insight so that you might grow in your knowledge of God. And just to be clear, and I know we've shared this before, knowledge of God is not head knowledge about. The word there that was originally used is about an intimate relationship with. Okay? So it's not head knowledge about God, it's, it's knowing God in this intimate two-way relationship. And Paul's prayer is that we would know God, deeply know God. And I don't know about you, but the only way we can do this in any relationship is to spend time with someone. 
That's how we get to know someone intimately. That's how the depth of our relationship um, flows out. It's spending time talking to, listening to. And so there's a number of things in this. And just really quickly, like just to know God, Jesus, when Jesus prayed in John chapter 17, he's praying for himself and then the disciples and then future believers. It's a beautiful prayer. And in that passage, John 17, verse 3, Jesus actually says, this is what eternal life is. Eternal life, and so this is Jesus praying, right, to his father. He says, eternal life is this, to know you, the one and only true God, and to know Jesus Christ, the one you sent. There's eternal life. There's salvation right there. It's in relationship with God through Jesus. And then we can get to know God more. And there's a, there's a big word for that that um, is used in, in the Bible and in a lot of theology. It's the word sanctification. It's the word that increasingly going deeper and getting to know God and being changed by him. And then the Bible points really clearly also to this word called glorification, which is that final truly knowing God. If you've ever been to a wedding and quite often a passage that is read at a wedding is from uh, 1 Corinthians 13, that passage about love. You know, love is patient, love is kind. You're, you're probably familiar with that. Um, just after that is expressed, Paul talks about, you know, at the moment it's like, it's like this blurry mirror. We're sort of seeing God in a blurry mirror type of thing. We're not quite getting the full picture, but there's going to come a time when you will get to know God fully and completely, just like he already knows you fully and completely. There's going to be a time where we actually step into glory with God through Jesus Christ, where we will get to know the full picture. It's something that, that just you can, pin your, you can pin your life on. You can pin your hopes on that. So that's the first prayer, that we know God more intimately. The second prayer that Paul has he says, I pray that your hearts will be flooded with light so that you can understand the confident hope he has given to those he has called, his holy people who are his rich and glorious inheritance. Again, that passage about love in 1 Corinthians 13, as we go through all of that, there's this famous phrase, many people would probably have it on a plaque or a picture in your house, now, these three things remain, faith, hope, and love. And the, and the greatest of these is love, it goes on to say. Faith, hope, and love, three, three key things. So what we've already seen in this prayer, Paul is already commending these people and thanking God for their faith and their love. And then he's praying that, oh, I just pray that your hope will develop, that you really understand the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And so as he unpacks this, he's, he's saying that I want, I want your hope to be revealed. Now hope comes to us from the hands of God, from a God who will not fail us. And I want to unpack a little bit what we've already read in this chapter. This is the God who will not fail us. Earlier in 1 Ephesians, in the first chapter of Ephesians, before verse 15, this is what we discovered. 
Jeff unpacked this last week. He said, he has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. That he chose us in him before the creation of the world. That he predestined us for adoption into his family. That he's freely lavished his grace on us. That we have redemption through his blood. That we have forgiveness of sins. He has made his mystery of his will known to us. And that will is to bring into unity all things in heaven and earth under Christ, in Christ. It says we were chosen, we were predestined according to his great plan. We are included in Christ. We are marked with a seal, which is the Holy Spirit. And we will inherit all of creation in Christ. That's our future. And Paul's saying, my prayer is that you would just understand the hope that you have, that that is where we are heading. That is what God's calling us to. That is what God's prepared for us. In the book of Ephesians, just before it talks about the importance of continually meeting together and staying connected to the church, staying connected to the body, the writer of Hebrews says, let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope that we affirm, the hope that we speak, for God can be trusted to keep his promises. And so there's this great and mighty God who has promised us life in him, has done everything necessary to provide that for us. And, he, and he's saying in this passage in Ephesians, hey, as you just live your life, your normal day-to-day life, just hang on to that hope, the hope that I've already given you. We don't have to earn it. We don't have to work for it. We don't have to tick boxes to make sure we keep it. It is already given to us through God's great mercy and grace. There's a passage that you've probably heard many times and particularly this year as we look at our focus of um, you know, finding common ground with people, building relationship with people who don't know Jesus yet. And then in 1 Peter chapter 3, we read this. He's saying, you must worship Jesus Christ as Lord of your life. And if someone asks you about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. And do it with gentleness and respect. That's a passage we've heard many times. And it's a passage that just aligns itself with how we are called to live life. Live life with people who don't know Jesus yet in such a way that they go, why? Why do you think that way? Why do you respond that way? Why do you say that? And there's this hope that just bubbles up. And we can share it with others and say, well, a life with Jesus, a life with God is a life where I know what's coming. I know what's waiting for me. There's no doubts. There's no insecurity. There's no ambiguity. It is clear. This is what my future is. And it's been assured for me by Jesus. Now, hope is an anchor. See, Paul's affirming this church, affirming them for their faith, affirming them for their love, but needs them to grow in hope. Because hope is an anchor that holds us in relationship with God, regardless of what is tossed at us in life. Now, one of the biggest issues we see when we look at our society is a sense of hopelessness in people. Hopelessness in young people. 
That there doesn't seem to be meaning, there doesn't seem to be purpose, there doesn't seem to be reason for life. But hope's this anchor that says no matter what life throws at me, whether there's relationship breakdown, whether there's physical illness, whether there's unemployment, where there's a whole range of things that can just happen and they do happen, hope is that anchor that just keeps us grounded in who Jesus Christ is and who he promises us to be. It really is a great picture. And so the third thing that Paul prays for, he says, I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe him. And then he goes on to say, this is actually the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in that place of honour in the heavenlies. I read in a number of places this week as I was just sitting in this, a number of commentators have said, you know, in Paul's prayer, he did not ask God to give them what they did not have, but he asked God to reveal to them what they already had. The power of God that raised Christ from the dead is given to you and I. It's given to the church. And too many of us, I'm thinking of myself, too many of me, not too many of me, no, me included, just have spent so much of my Christian life not not plugged into this power, not aware of the availability of this power, not, not... Um, understanding what it means to tap into that power, maybe scared of what that could look like if if I did. And Paul's prayer is, oh, would you just get it? Would you just understand that the power of God is given to you, is given to us as the church? The power of God is alive and active. As Paul continues this letter to the Ephesians, as we get close to the end in chapter 6, He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. That's an active thing to do. Be strong. Right now, in the present, be strong in the Lord and in his active power. Now, we've read this many times. When when we started um, looking at what it means to actually go into the world, that verse from Acts 1, verse 8, where Luke writes this, he says, Jesus is talking, he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and that power will enable you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and to the ends of the world. It's the power of God freely available to us that, that Paul is saying, can, can I just pray that you will get that, that you'll understand that, that you'll tap into that, that you'll access that, that you'll believe that it's even there. A lot of the writing that we see in the New Testament is from the Apostle Paul, someone who, when we read his story in Acts, was absolutely opposed to Christianity, absolutely opposed to those who were following it until he met the risen Jesus. And it changed his world. And so as he writes to many different churches in that area in the first century, there's a passage in 1 Corinthians, a couple of verses here. Let me read this to you. 
So this is Paul writing to a group of people. He says, when I first came to you, dear brothers and sisters, I didn't use lofty words and impressive wisdom to tell you about God. For I decided that while I was with you, I would forget everything except Jesus Christ, who was crucified. That's all he preached. And he says, I came to you in weakness. I was timid and trembling. So this, this is the mighty apostle Paul. I came to you in weakness. I was timid and trembling. And my message and my preaching were very plain. Rather than using clever and persuasive speeches, I relied only on the power of the Holy Spirit. I did this so that you would trust not in human wisdom, but in the power of God. So here's someone who understands it because he models it, he lives it. He says, you know what, oh, there's nothing I can bring other than myself as a surrendered vessel to say, God, be at work in me and through me. And that's our discipleship model here at Coast. You've seen that picture of the tree and up in the branches, we're saying evidence of a life with God is that God is at work in you and through you. And it's his power that we're talking about. A bit like a conduit, just the power of God flowing through you into the world to others who, who need to experience him. Now the greatest display of power ever seen was Jesus Christ raised from the dead. There's nothing in history that matches that. And Paul's saying in this prayer, that same power, that's available to you. Do we get it? It is massive. It is life-changing. Paul's prayer for the church in, one, in chapter 1 of Ephesians is that they would come to realise that this same power is available to each of us in our everyday lives. This same power has the ability to transform lives and families and communities and nations and ultimately, as Paul unpacks, the whole universe is all going to be brought into unity in Christ. Pretty full on. And then as he finishes this chapter, chapter one, he says this, and, that, and God has put all things under the authority of Christ and has made him head over all things for the benefit of the church. And the church is his body. It is made full and complete by Christ who fills all things everywhere with himself. And I think sometimes Paul's really intentional about the language he uses to help us understand a pretty big concept in a simple way. So we've got here a picture of a head and a body. Jesus is the head, the church is his body. Now I don't know about you, but anything my body does is controlled by my head. Whether I'm aware of that or not, there's a thought to do an action and then that thought triggers... Now, synapses and neural pathways and that moves muscles and limbs and words and things like that. The head is what leads and controls the body. And so we're seeing here that the church is the body of Jesus here in this world where the actions of God himself are carried out. 
Another um, paraphrase of this, I'll, I'll have them up side by side here. Same passage, at the centre of all this, Christ rules the church. The church, you see, is not peripheral to the world. The world is peripheral to the church. The church is Christ's body in which he speaks and acts and by which he feels everything with his presence. If we can understand that the church, of which we are a very small part of here at Coast Community, but the church, global church, if we can understand that the church is central to what God is doing in his world and that Jesus has as his hands and his feet the church to be his agents of reconciliation and transformation within our world today. The church is his body, the fullness of who he is and what he's doing in the world. Then we've been called to a life that is so far beyond ourselves and our own little things that we could care about that, man, it gives some hope and purpose of life. We've been called into the body of Jesus Christ to be part of the work that he's doing to restore and redeem all things back to himself. If that doesn't give us a high picture of, of life and living and purpose and meaning, I don't know what will. But sometimes we want to just dabble around doing our own little thing. I'm talking about myself here. Just so concerned about my own little world and my own little concerns, my own little wants, my own little needs, and, and not see what God's actually called me into to be part of. The church is God's love in the world. The church is his body, it's his action, it's his presence, it's, it's, his, um, it's his way that he's made known in the world. And that's you and I. That's the church. And so to come right back to Paul's prayer in this passage, his prayer is that we would know God intimately. And when we know God intimately, we just align ourselves with his will, with what he's doing, what he wants, how he wants to use us. And we just say, yes, I'm yours. Imagine the church surrendered to God in that way, in a fresh way. Where God uses his praying church, because it's only through prayer, it's only through that intimate relationship, that intimate communication that we get to know God more fully. And when we know God more fully and know what he's about and what he's called us to, we step into that and then he starts to use his church the way he's always planned his church to be used. And that's to bring the world, to redeem the world, to reconcile the world back to himself. As I sat in this this week, I've just gone, man, my, my view of prayer life and my view of the church has gone from here to here somewhere. And I'm going, oh, I, don't know. I don't even know what to do with that yet. Other than just go, okay, God, show me. Can I encourage you, if you are someone who prays regularly, who has a prayer list, who has um, 
some sort of system of knowing, of helping you keep track of what to pray for, can I encourage you to really prayerfully consider bringing these three key points to the top of your list? Because as I was thinking about that, if, if my prayer just for myself and for my family, for example, is that we would grow in our knowledge and our understanding and our intimacy and our relationship with God, if that's just the only prayer I pray, then I think all the other prayers that I've generally been praying will just fit into that anyway. My prayers for health and safety and futures and all these things that you tend to pray as a, as a parent and as a husband and, and those things, they, they, they don't become irrelevant, but they just get placed into alignment with that. That's, that makes sense because I'm just... The big prayer, the main prayer is, God, I just want to know you more. Would you reveal more of yourself to me? Would you shape me? Would you use me? So I don't know about you, but I've sat in this this week, and as I said, I feel like I've gone from an understanding here to having it really stretched, and now, now I'm going, how, how do I move into that? How do I, how do I make this more of my norm to, to be really influenced by Paul's prayer to the Ephesians and go, those are prayers worth praying. Those are things worth giving my time and my life to. And understanding what he's called us to as the church, as his body. I, I don't know if you're feeling overwhelmed. I felt overwhelmed by this. Um, but the beauty of it all is that we, we can journey this together. We can continue to talk to one another. We can continue to pray with one another. We continue to unpack this in our home groups and, and things like that where, where we actually start living and operating as the church because we're doing life together as his people, as his body. Um, let me leave it there. I'll pray for us. So, Jesus, my renewed prayer for myself for my family, for us as a church, is that you would give us spiritual wisdom and insight into who you are and into who you say we are. I pray that that revelation will shape us in a fresh way. I pray that we would have a hope a strong hope for who you have called us to be and what you have in store for us. A hope so strong that we can stand in the middle of whatever this life throws at us and not be swayed. And I pray that we would understand the greatness of your power that is freely available to us and live in that in such a way that we surrender ourselves and say, in my weakness, my prayer is that your power and strength would shine through. That is our prayer together this morning. Amen.